0: It's a delight to be back, always miss you guys and I'm very grateful, grateful for you all. We will jump right in here in verse 11, it says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men and immediately we are connected back to the first 10 verses of chapter 2 which Brad taught us last Sunday. Let's read those again, those first ten verses, so that the great truths of verses 11 through 15 that we will see this morning don't just dangle out there without connection or purpose. Beginning chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience, the older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teacher, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to save you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, In all things. In the following verses that we will look at this morning, Paul explains the ultimate reason, Titus and the church in Crete, why men, women, young and old, slave and free, are to live like this. Paul now gives the center point, it would be the hub of the wheel of Christian living, it is where everything comes together. It is where the motive and energy of that wheel goes outward to compel us to live in such direct opposition to the world and the vast majority of mankind in it. It would be as if the wheel were the actions on the outside, the rim. Why be reverent, sober, self-controlled? Why not slander or gossip? Why be kind or submissive? Why, why not be argumentative? Why then, in the spokes coming down to the center, why is it important, though, that people around us not have grounds for speaking evil of us? Why is it important that the Word of God not be reviled? It all begins with the final phrase of verse 10. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What is such a powerful doctrine God, our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning to your word and we, we do not have any idea the magnitude of this gift that we hold in our hands. Oh, Father, please speak to us. We have no idea of the, the hardness and the denseness of our ears. Nor do we, do we have any way of really truly understanding the glorious greatness of who you are but father in your grace you have brought us together you have brought men who are sinners who are selfish who are prideful and you have brought us into fellowship with the king of kings the lord of lords the almighty god and you have done it through this grace lord please show us this morning help us to understand please father please work in spite of my shortcomings my weaknesses, please work in spite of our tendency to let our minds wander everywhere, from the past to the future, to anything going on around. Us. Lord, please help us. We are mortal. We ask for Your Spirit, Father, to come upon us this morning and draw us near to You, for You are worthy. We think of the the brief time we have here on earth, Father, and we we think it's long, but it is a a minute split second of eternity. Lord, help us today. Prepare us to glorify you with whatever we have left so that we will enjoy the fellowship with you forever. Lord, lead us this morning through your word. Thank you that you would be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Well, what is grace? What are we talking about when we speak of this grace? We know that the attribute of grace is often described as receiving what we do not deserve. It is the unmerited favor of God. At no time in the history of the world was grace more clearly seen than when Christ voluntarily suffered the wrath of God the Father's judgment against sin. And there he hung, dying in agony and isolation On the cross. Crushed. By his father's wrath. Because of my sin. But the appearance of God's grace. In verse 11. Is more than simply a word. To describe a special kindness from God. This grace. Actually came in a form. That the disciple John says. We have heard. We have seen with our eyes we have looked upon and our hands have handled. It was grace that was literally tangible to our very senses. What we could see, what we could hear, what we could even touch. It is the extraordinary creation of God's grace into a living, breathing person. It is the extravagance of God's grace displayed in a mortal man This amazing phenomena comes to life for us if we go to the book of Philippians chapter 2. There in verse 5 we see the beginning of this. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God that means always eternally existing as God he did not consider robbery to be equal with God meaning he didn't hold and grasp onto it. But instead it says he made himself of no reputation. That's the king of the universe. Becoming nothing. He takes the form of a bond of a slave. And he comes in the likeness of men. Like you and me. And being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. And became obedient to the point of death. Even the death on the cross. Therefore. God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He wrote, Therefore, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. But has now been revealed by the appearing, and this is the same word for appearing of grace that we see in Titus, revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This grace, writes Hendrickson, had arisen when Jesus was born, when words of life and beauty issued from his lips, when he healed the sick, cleansed the lepers, cast out demons, raised the dead, suffered for men's sins, and laid down his life for the sheep in order to take it up again on resurrection morning. Brothers and sisters, when you think of God's grace... Do not blur it. Do not downgrade or mystify it by thinking of it only as a religious term. Do not minimize grace, its depth and height and breadth by simply seeing it as a very generous attribute of God. Instead, I I ask you, see grace embodied in the very person of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ is grace incarnate grace in the flesh John wrote and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory is of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth that is the Christ and then we read that this grace appeared the appearance of grace it's where we get the word epiphany it means to show forth to shine a light upon it's like if you've had a and, and I know many of you have had. You've had a long, hard night with no sleep, with pain, with difficulty. And you think that night's never going to end. And then the sun begins to come up over the horizon and begins to shed light. And, and, and then oftentimes in my situation like that, I begin to see things in a whole new different way when it says the appearance it means that very thing to shine light upon what was dark John describes Jesus in John chapter 1 and he says this in verse 4 in him was life and the life was the light of men that light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it the amplified version says for the darkness has never overpowered it put it out Or absorbed it. It never can and it never will. Luke proclaims Christ's fulfillment of Isaiah. Prophesying this. He says. Through the tender mercy of our God. With which the day spring. Christ from on high. Has visited us. That was his coming. His first coming. Then he goes on to say. To give light. Again it's that same word appearing. It's the word epiphany which you get the idea, epiphany. He came to give light to those who sit in darkness than the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Romans chapter 3 describes men as those who have no way of peace. There is no peace in their way. But God has given that through grace in His Son, Jesus Christ. This grace... This new full light has appeared, it says, to all men. How can that be? To all men? How does God's grace impact mankind? Well, the word all here includes the idea of oneness, of totality, of, of the whole. In 2 Corinthians five nineteen, we we hear something similar about including so much. It says, That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. In 2 Peter 3, 9, we read, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We can struggle with that at some times. These scriptures speak of God's inclusive gospel, That it is available to any and all who will repent and believe in Christ. And we know that to be true. We believe that. But we also know from the message of the Bible that these scriptures are not promises that every man and woman will be saved. In fact, we know that there are few who are saved from destruction. Jesus very frankly announced to a large crowd that had gathered to follow after him. And he said, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is a gate and difficult is a way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Here here are three truths about this grace. First of all, it is offered to all mankind. Isaiah 55 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Revelations 22, verse 17, is a reflection. It says there, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Think about that. Let that sink in. Some of you may really need that this morning. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And 1 Timothy 2, verse 3, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for all To be testified in due time. What that tells us. Is that our God is a saving God. He makes a broad offer. To save any and all. Who will believe on him. Titus chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10. There Paul. Includes a wide comprehensive swath. Of mankind as well. He includes old men. Young men. Old women. Young women. Slaves. Free men. The salvation of grace that we read of is offered to all people, including all ethnic groups, genders, and ages. Secondly, the salvation of God's grace is given only through faith. John 1.12, but as many as have received him, to, those who be- to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who have believed in his name. John 5.24 Most assuredly I say to you he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. John 6.40 And this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. we've, We've... Talked a lot about funerals in our family lately, and I was talking with Carl about Mark just before I came up here, and Sherry's father is ninety, my father's ninety-four. We've been facing this idea of the finality of life in some ways that we've really hadn't looked at for a while. I love this verse: "Those that know Christ and are in the grave don't have to figure out if will my faith get me up out of here." Jesus says, I will raise you up. I will raise him up at that last day. All those who have fallen asleep that are in the grave now, that have trusted in Christ, will be raised up by Christ. In Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And the third thing is unbelief condemns to death. John 3.16, we read the first part of that, but it goes on to say in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Sounds rather universalist, but listen to verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son is condemned already. John 5, 38, Jesus says, But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent him you do not believe. But you are not willing to come to me, that you may have life. Oh, if we could get that message. Sometimes when we're speaking to men on the street or on the campus or in the neighborhood, we we wish we could open up the heart and place faith in there. That they could see, you believe, and you can walk with Him. He will be your Father, and you will have eternal life. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain someday. But this is Jesus saying this. And He is saying, you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Jesus explained further in John chapter 10. He says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. Christ gave his life to redeem specifically his sheep, his children. And He knows them, and they know Him. Now, does such unmerited, what sometimes we refer to as monergistic, that means God doing the work, does such unmerited monergistic grace to which we bring absolutely no merit, we have no deserving, no earning. In fact, everything we have done should have made God flee from us. Does such total grace eliminate the concept of obedience for life? Or as the old retired Marine Friday night and the young Muslim engineer a month ago both stated in similar words to these. If God's grace is not about doing right but simply believing Christ then I can believe and and, and live like the devil can't I? That is actually a pretty good starting point in understanding the grace of the gospel. You might chuckle to hear that saying, you think say, that's crazy. But that is not crazy. After Paul explained in detail the grace of Christ in his letter to the Romans in chapters 3 through 5, he anticipates his readers may say the very same thing. He writes in Romans 6, verse 15, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? certainly not and here's his response do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey you are that one slave whom you obey whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin though I was a slave of sin Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. You see, a man who receives God's grace becomes a new creation, a new being. Paul wrote, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God changes something vital inside of a new believer. Ezekiel, back in the Old Testament, chapter 36, verse 26. Look what God does to you if you place your faith in Him. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God does a radical work in us. So how is God glorified in someone who has received such magnanimous, marvelous grace. How is God glorified? Does, does a new believer kind of just walk a few inches off the ground like he's up in the air? Does, does he have a, a, a halo like you see in the old, uh, I don't know what era it was, of, of art. Where they have that glow around their heads. Does, does he start wearing a robe and sandals? Or does he start to speak in King James English? Obviously not. We know that is not what happens. The ESV Study Bible states one cannot truly be a recipient of saving grace without being a pupil of training grace. And that's where we go in the next verse. God's grace begins a process in our lives, it is a pedagogy, it is a teaching. It teaches us what? It teaches us denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The present age. God's grace is for living right now. God's grace begins to instruct believers in Christ what to reject and what to pursue. In other words, God's grace teaches us to say no to sin and yes to godliness. And this pattern, is a, it's really interesting. This pattern of parents and teachers take notice of this. This negative positive life teaching is a Bible staple. No to sin, yes to godliness. For example, if we go to Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who, and he's going to give us a negative, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners nor sits in the seat of the scornful but and this is the positive this is what to do his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night the negative positive Peter teaches Christian Christian living the same way beloved he writes I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims here's the negative Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And here's the positive: having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And here is why: that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of His visit and day of visitation. This is really good for us. It's good for us individually. It's good for us as as parents and families. We want to live for Christ. It's not all about positive thinking. Nor is it all about legalistic don'ts. It's about both. And and the scriptures bear that over and over again. Paul, or excuse me, Hendrickson said this when he was speaking about the first part, the say no to the world. He said the repudiation is a definite act. A decision to give up that which is displeasing to God. No one sleeps his way into heaven. Paul gives a very specific list in Galatians 5 verse 19. And and follow along with me if you would. Galatians 5 verses 19 through 21. Paul lists these things. He says now the works of the flesh are evident. Which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, Sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Put those things away. Some of them may be things you've never even thought of. Some of those may be things that you struggle with every day. If you are following closely in that list, you may have noticed that there is a strong emphasis on a particular type of sin. It's a sexual sin. Adultery, fornication, lewdness. Whether it be adultery, fornication, pornography, lust, homosexuality, bestiality, and on and on and on. These have destroyed practically every major society throughout world history. It is literally eating up our nation like a ravenous cancer. Sexual sin is weakening the purity, the courage, and confidence of young and old in the church. Brothers and sisters, God says in his word we must deny these things. Renounce the hidden things of shame. Paul wrote. I want to just say this though in reflection on this. These are all listed in Romans chapter 1. And those are the symptoms. What's really the problem is the heart. And there we find where Paul writes because although they knew God they did not glorify him as God nor give him thanks so if you simply want to push these things out of your life and hope that things get better or add these things so that your life will improve don't start with the heart that you know God and you glorify him as God and you give him thanks then you are equipped and empowered To renounce sin. And to walk in godliness. But Paul goes on there in Galatians 5. After he had given that long list. And then he says in verse 22. But. Here's the yes. The positive. The fruit of the spirit is love. Joy. Peace. Long suffering. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. Against such there is no law. To Titus, he writes, you live soberly, righteously, and godly. Now in order to respond like this, what must we do? We must stay absolutely close to Jesus Christ. We must be in his word and near him in prayer. And if that sounds too old-fashioned or legalistic or, or it's not you, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We must abide with Christ. And in order to do that, you must abide in his word. You must abide in his word. John 14, Jesus answered and said to this man, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with them. and he who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine but the father's who sent me so when do we live like this when do we renounce sin and live in godliness it says in the present age this is now time this little phrase is a comfort it's a motivator In Philippians 1 verse 6 we read being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Will complete it. 1 John 3 verse 2 Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be but we know that when he is revealed we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What these verses tell us is that the battle is on, but the victory is sure and the end is coming. It will not be like this forever. But now, in the meantime, because we have this hope, we purify ourselves. We know that we shall be like him. We know that his good work will be completed in us. So we deny ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And then we read of God's grace for the future. Verse 13, Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. In the Bible, hope is a firm conviction that God's promises will be fulfilled. In the Bible, hope is not just a wish. It is an assurance Of what will come to pass. There is no doubt. Associated with the word hope in scripture. In fact Hebrews 6 verse 19. Calls hope a sure. And a steadfast anchor. We can count on it. It is there to stay. And we read that this hope is a blessing. Please turn with me. Please turn with me. To 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want you to. Read along just so this stays in your mind because we're to be looking for this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality so when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal is put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory it has happened it is over we won't have to renounce ungodliness and wickedness anymore we won't we won't have to seek to live purely in contrast and opposition to the world we will have arrived in eternity in the hands of our god philippians chapter 3 more about this hope being a blessing for our citizenship is in heaven for which we also eagerly wait for the savior the lord jesus christ Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. I'll, I'll ask you a question. You don't have to raise hands. But how many of you have literally thought about the idea that this weak body that you have, some weaker than others, Someday we'll be completely transformed and changed into a body that is immortal. Probably haven't, most of us. But this scripture says we're to be looking forward to that, looking for this blessed hope. Now, we don't just camp there, but it says we are to look there. We are to have that in the back of our minds on a constant basis that someday we will see Jesus Christ face to face and he will be in such glory that we have never in our greatest imaginations ever even come close to what that will be like. And he who hung on that cross, filthy, bloody, unrecognizable, despicable, humiliated, Forget the most of the paintings you've ever seen about it. He who hung there and died will come back in victory able to subdue all things to himself. What a glorious day that will be. And don't forget it. Look to it. This hope is that Jesus Christ It says will gloriously appear. And he will appear as God. Now the point I want to strongly make. Is that Jesus Christ is God. The only God. And you may think well. Yeah, we know that. But if you've spent any time sharing the gospel, you know why this is important. And part of the role of preaching and teaching is to equip you for ministry. So we want you to be prepared when you face some of these oppositions to what is true doctrine. Jesus Christ is God. But this is the most strongly contested truth between Christianity versus all other religions than cults and atheists. Is Jesus God? Yes, Jesus is God. Verse 13, unfortunately, I think, has been interpreted by some to be speaking of two persons appearing, God and Jesus. But I want to briefly show why verse 13 is declaring Jesus Christ to be both God and Savior. And this could be a long study. We're just going to kind of surface over it. But I want you to be aware of this. First of all, the New Testament attests to Christ's deity, that He is God. The Gospel of John Alone is packed. The first 14 verses, if you read that, you walk away with nothing but that revelation that Jesus is God. John 1 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. It is Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, you ask me to tell you exactly how that works, and I I cannot. But I know it is true that He was with God the Father. And yet He is God as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is God. Paul's letters, Romans 9 verse 5. And there's so many more, but we'll just glance over a few. Of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Christ, the eternally blessed God. Philippians 2 verse 6 who being in the form, as we read earlier, meaning the essential and changing eternal character of God, Christ being in that form, the Son of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God. Colossians 2.9, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And I've had some people try to use that scripture to discredit this. And I'm asking you, how could all the fullness of God dwell in a body if it wasn't God? It would be impossible, an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God to dwell in bodily form can only be if that is God Himself. Secondly, the Old Testament proclaims Yahweh the Lord, the God of the Old Testament as Redeemer and Purifier. That's exactly what Titus says of him in verse 14. In 2 Samuel 7 it says, And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. Psalm 130 verse 8 and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Ezekiel 37. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols. Nor with their detestable things. Nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned. And will cleanse them. I will purify them. Then they shall be my people. And I will be their God. And we look at those verses. And one of the things that is upholding much of that is. Why does God do this? It is for the glory of His name. It is for the glory of His name that He has saved many of you and that He has sustained many of you. Yes, He loves you. But it is for His glory that He has acted in such a way to redeem and purify you. And then the, the third thing is, and I'm, I'm going to go through this quickly, but there's some textual grammatical reasons to see God and Savior as one person in Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the, Hendrickson wrote this and this may fly by fast but unless any specific instance there are strong reasons to the contrary which means there can be exceptions. The rule holds that when the first of two nouns of the same case connected by the conjunction and is preceded by the article which is not repeated before the second noun These two nouns refer to the same person. And what we're saying is there should have been another article in there if we were talking about two different people. We are talking about one who is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, rather than our great God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no extra article, so grammatically that fits. Another thing about textual, uh, criticism here would be the word epiphany faino is used to refer only to one person throughout all of the New Testament every time it is used it refers to one person so what is it then that makes Jesus Christ such a great God and Savior and here we're coming to a very important part of this scripture uh, in that it's almost as if Paul is telling these things and drawing this out. And then he gets to the point where he, it's like, I cannot stop here without saying, look who Jesus is, what he has done. He goes on here. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. God's grace was accomplished by God. Two life-changing works are performed here. Christ redeems us. God bought His children out from underneath the sentence of eternal judgment in hell. The price He paid was death in a brutal, humiliating execution on the cross. There Christ suffered the just wrath of God, poured out on Him because of your sin and my sin. Christ in that act purchased for us a new freedom. And new freedom. And it was through his sacrificial grace. 1 Timothy 2 says. For there is one God and one mediator. Between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. Who gave himself a ransom. For all to be testified in due time. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. and the life which I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God. Who loved me. And gave himself for me. 1 Peter 1:18 and 19 knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Now, how many of you think that worthless things, corruptible things like silver and gold are not important? We do. We value them immensely. But what this is saying is it doesn't matter how much gold and silver you would pile up. It could never amount to the price that Christ paid. Then what was that price? The precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The life of the Son. It was a sacrificial grace and it is a redeeming grace. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption, the redeeming of Christ Jesus. Hebrews nine verse twelve. Not with the blood of goats and calves. But with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all. Having obtained eternal redemption. Eternally redeeming us. One time. He does not need to be brought down. Every mass. By some priest. In a unbloodied sacrifice. He did it once for all for us. And it is eternal. It is eternal redemption. What a savior that we have. And he did that for you and I. You know how filthy you are. Why would he do that? For his glory. And for his glory includes his love for us. And it is a purifying grace. Deuteronomy 14.2 says for you are a holy people to Jehovah your God. And Jehovah has chosen you to be a people to him. A special treasure out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Ezekiel 37 and they will not still be defiled with their idols even with their filthy idols nor with all of their transgressions. That is us brothers and sisters. But I will save them out of their dwelling places where they have sinned in them. And I will Cleanse them. I will purify them. So they shall be a people to me. And I will be for God to them. Spurgeon wrote this. He said Paul does not talk about a kind of grace. That would leave men in sin. And yet save them from its punishment. No his salvation is salvation from sin. He does not talk about a free grace which winks at iniquity and makes nothing of transgression but of a greater grace by far which denounces the iniquity and condemns the transgression and then delivers the victim of it from the habit which, he, which has brought him into bondage. We can be delivered from that sin. You may be under a, a guilt of sin that you've had for a long time. You can be delivered by this Savior. Along with a new freedom, we receive a new master. In verse 14, the English Standard Version reads, To purify for himself a people for his own possession. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen generation, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. His own special people. That you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Who once were not a people but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Do you see the connection? We were in darkness but the light has appeared. The appearance, the epiphany. Christ has come and we were in darkness but now we are in light. We had not received mercy but we have received mercy by Christ through faith. Again, Spurgeon writes this about the people of God. Believers are Christ's own people, His choice and select portion. Saints are Christ's crown jewels, His box of diamonds, His very, very, very own. He carries His people as lambs in His bosom. He engraves their names on His heart. They are his an inheritance to which he is the heir. And he values them more than all the universe beside. What a quote. And then we receive a new purpose. It says here, we receive a zeal, a zest, says Hendrickson, an eager desire to do good works. Ephesians 2 says, we are God's workmanship, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you want to see a person profoundly changed by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, listen to this account. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. I love the book of Luke, that author. And I love it because of the people that he brings to the to the to the focus and how to see the ministry of Christ. This is one of my favorites. Luke 7, verse 36. Then when one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisees' house and sat down to eat. Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. That's a subtle way of telling us that she was a woman of ill repute. She was very much looked down upon by everyone and her practice of life was one full of sin and wickedness. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him in, Pharisees who had invited him in, saw this, he spoke to him saying, "Excuse me." He spoke to himself saying, "This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answered and said to him, "Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon and look at this woman, look at this moment you have a Pharisee in all his regalia in his own fine fancy home at the table he has set for all the guests and you have a woman standing there who everyone despises. Do you see this woman? Jesus says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Didn't bother Christ. He looks to the woman and he said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And we're not going to dissect every piece of that. I love that story. We've done that before. But you get the feel of what is happening here. This woman loved Christ and she stooped and did anything and everything to show her adoration for him. Nothing was too low. Nothing was too embarrassing. Nothing was enough. She gave all that she had. What difference does God's grace make in your life? What are you supposed to do with grace if you belong to Christ? not if you profess Christ or say I believe in Jesus but if you belong to Christ if he is your savior and Lord what do you do about his grace well we follow what Paul has laid out you grow as grace teaches you to say no to temptations to advertisements to peer pressures to desires of lust and passion and pride any and everything that goes against God You grow as grace teaches you in giving your time, your money, your energy, your thinking, your talents to the sober truths of life according to Jesus. This is a war which men and women's souls hang in the balance. It's not an eternal balance. It's not an eternal, eternal war. It is a very temporary balance, one that has a short timer on it at the most maybe 80 or 90 years at the least maybe a few more seconds before you get through those doors as Jonathan Edwards says you hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder if you are not one of Christ's and you do what God says to do and you live how he says to live and you do this why Why do you do this? Again, the gentleman that we spoke with the other night, he he said something to this effect. You know, I've worked really hard to do the right things. That should account for something for me to go to heaven, shouldn't it? I told him, it doesn't. You do the right things if you're a man of God and it brings glory to your Savior. But if you think you can do enough of the right things to somehow bring you to that level that you would be accepted into a holy, righteous God, you are lost, my friend, and you know have no idea of the depth of your sin. We do what we do for the glory of God. And then you eagerly wait with great anticipation for the return of our glorious God and Savior. Don't forget that think about that search the scriptures what will that day be like but paul gives one more instruction aimed at titus's leadership he says speak these things exhort and rebuke with all authority god's grace is his message Titus is commanded to speak these things. These things, sayings, what are they? Well, if you look back at Titus chapter 2, verse 1, the beginning of this chapter, Paul opens this section of his letter the same way. He says, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. And he then lists specific directions on how men and women, old and young, slave and free, are to live to bring glory to their Savior God. That is what these things are that Titus is to speak. And then Paul, because he knows these Cretans, and what does he know about the Cretans? How did he describe them? Can you give me one of his characteristics? They're liars. They're gluttons. What's that? Lazy. Lazy gluttons, yeah. Evil beasts. And they're not just that some of the time. He says they are always these things. Paul knows that. So he gives Titus three levels of verbal communication to use. He says, speak to them. That means to utter words, to simply to talk, tell them. Then he says, exhort. And that means literally to call near. Exhort is to urge the application of truth to these listeners. It is more than simply uttering words. It involves persuasion and passion. And then he goes one step up. He says, rebuke or reprove. In one translation it says to shame or to disgrace. It means to prove another person is in the wrong. In other words depending on how the people respond. Communication may have to ratchet up in severity. You have to communicate in the way that will make the point Titus. And Titus can take on this task because he has authority. It's, uh, some commentators believe that Paul intended this letter to be read publicly before the church in Crete. If that is the case, then Paul is letting the church know that his authority is being passed on directly to Titus. When Titus speaks, Paul is speaking, and therefore Christ is speaking. He has the authority of Christ. And then that is why Paul closes with this statement. Let no one despise you. It translates a little odd here. But what Paul is saying is, don't let anyone despise. Think around you Titus. Don't let the people there in Crete. Rationalize their way out of truth. You know we will do that. When the pressure is on won't we. When a preacher speaks. Very directly from the word of God. The tendency can be to respond with. Well the preacher doesn't really understand me. He doesn't know my situation. He doesn't, he doesn't get today's culture. He doesn't know my family. We try to find some way to avoid conviction. Often A resistant listener will simply say, well, that's just the preacher's interpretation. You know that's true? That's why we beg for your prayers regularly, even as Brad mentioned this morning in prayer requests, that the preaching here would be according to the Word of God and will be accurate and true. We need your prayers. It is the best we can do at the interpretation, and we try hard, we pray much, Hopefully the preacher's interpretation is truth. But at times it will not be accurate. He or I may be wrong. I will be wrong. But you need to have a biblical reason why you resist. Not simply an opinion or a preference. We must all be as Bereans. And we love Bereans here. We mention them often. The NIV which is how I first learned it. I love the way it says this. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. If that could be written of Paul, who, who are we? You must be in the word of God and that, that is one of our greatest pleas. Not simply for your own edification and understanding, but so that the church stays on the right track with the Word of God. Be in it to be sure that what Kent or or Brad or Phil or some of the others who have preached, to be sure that what we are saying is backed up by the Word of God. May this be true of this church. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God which you heard from us you welcomed it not as the word of men but as it is in truth the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. So we follow God's directions for living because he saved us by his grace. We deny ungodliness and live godly in every area of life for the purpose of glorifying the Christ who saved us. And we eagerly anticipate Christ's glorious return because of who He is and the great things He has prepared for those who love Him. 1 Peter 2, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that when they speak against you as evildoers, They may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. May that be us. May we live for Christ in such a way that the world can't figure it out. And that we draw closer and closer and closer as we walk and step with him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it has power and it is alive and it is sharper than a double-edged sword. Father, thank you that it is pure and faultless and it leads and teaches and it gives light in darkness, gives sight to the blind. Lord, that it gives strength, that it convicts and sometimes it's hard and yet it is truth. Lord, may we be like Jeremiah who said, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy, my heart's delight. Father, may we glorify you. May we speak of your grace to people everywhere so that you are glorified and that some may be saved. Father, fill each man and woman, young and old here, as we leave today with your spirit, Lord, with a a deep, strong desire to glorify and declare Christ. In your name we pray, amen.